Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Bert and uh, Mary. An excellent job as always. Great song. And uh, could you turn your Bibles to Obadiah, verse 1? Continuing our study of the book of Obadiah today. In the first session, we'll be no noting uh, verse 11. And as you can see on the board, verse 11 will be about the second and third indictments against Edom. And then in the second session, we'll do verse 12, which presents some more indictments against the nation of Edom. And uh, remember, I've told you this in a class last week and other previous classes that in the Old Testament, you see God, when he is going to uh, proclaim judgment against the nation, whether it's Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, or uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, or Babylon, or Edom, or whatever the nation is, Egypt, he always gives a list of indictments, reasons why he's going to do this. And uh, so uh, remember, God is a God of uh, long-suffering, and he's patient, and he's waiting for people to repent and trust in him. So when he does execute judgment, it's many times generations before he, uh, that he, he waits before he destroys a nation. And so uh, that'll be what we'll be looking at today in the first and second session. Remember, the first Sunday of each month, we observe the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, which will be at the end of the second lesson as we usually do it. So uh, also, if you could keep in prayer, my good friend Ray uh, Perkins, uh, he usually opens up here in Sunday morning, sits right over here. You all know who he is. And uh, he's not feeling well. He's been battling uh, some stuff, uh, probably he got from his grandchild, I think, he said. But uh, he's uh, he's got he had a fever. It's down to, to below 100 finally. So if you could keep him in prayer, he didn't get much sleep, sleep last night. So he's going to try to get some today. He's a great guy. I love him. And uh, I take my I ride bike with him, ride the bikes with him in, uh, in the good weather. And he goes easy on me. When we ride around, because he takes me through, he's got the GPS, and you know how Ray is, he's meticulous, and I love it, so I just sit along for the ride. Okay, I'll just follow you, right? And he never goes too fast, so I can keep up, so. Anyways, he's, he's, and then we come back, and a lot of times we'll have a, at the, uh, at my house, we'll sit on the porch and, and have a beer, and I love to listen to him talk, because he's such a, a brilliant guy, and he's done a lot of great, cool things, so I enjoy listening to him. I could do a lot of you that I, I meet and spend time with. All right, so let's take a moment of silent prayer, as is our custom. We take this moment of silent prayer. It's very important because we want to receive, as we saw in our Doctrine of Inspiration this past Wednesday, illumination into the revelation that God has already given to us in Scripture. And I, had a, I was telling, I think it was... Larry today, and it was, Henry and I was out with a, a friend of his, and we went to see the Fab Four, the Beatles tribute band, and I love the Beatles, so they had to put up with me singing to all the songs. <laughs> In fact, there was one part where I was talking to John Lennon, with the guy who was playing John Lennon. I said, hey, John, where's Yoko? And they're all going, oh, geez, get this guy out of here. But, uh, so anyways, I'm sitting up, uh, this guy comes in between the, intermi the intermission, and he's saying, you know, you gotta, we got to... Um, we got to go and uh, get ready. For, he was a pastor, and he was a Christian. He was supposedly a street preacher down here. And uh, so I said, hey, you know, you know, we got to get the church, we got to get on fire for God so that Jesus will come back. I said, really? I said, you go. He says, because I read my Bible, it says, you know, he's coming back whether we're ready or not. He said, you know, we're, it's imminent, you know. you got to be prepared. And he's like, oh, no. Basically, I was screwing him up. I was like, well, wait a minute, brother. I said, that's what, it, where's the chapter and verse? I mean, and he goes, well, it doesn't matter. I don't have any in the chapter. I said, you don't. So he got some revelation from the Holy Spirit. I said, really? See, I read my Bible. The revelation is already in the New Testament, Old Testament. They got the revelation, the, the writers of Scripture. I did. All we can get is illumination as to what God gave them. And he's like, oh, you're messing me up. <laughs> I was like, sorry, I'll pray for you. you know, he's, his name's Michael, so keep him in prayer. And uh, he's a Beatle fan. He couldn't be all that bad. So anyways... 
So I, I, I say that to illustrate my point that if we want to get anything out of Bible class, and if I'm supposed to do my job correctly, we must be in fellowship with God so that we can get illumination or we could say insight into the revelation that God gave us in the completed canon of scripture. And today, of course, we're studying the book of Obadiah, so we want the Holy Spirit to give us illumination, understanding. And it's interesting what the Holy Spirit does is, um, he, you know, everybody, every one of us is at different stages and, of, and levels of growth. So what somebody might get, I can, I can, I can present applications pretty obvious or implications from the text especially with you know books like old Obadiah which was written old Old Testament Israel uh, and Edom and uh, but we can get an application or implications that come from this when we study these books but um, the thing is is like I, you you're gonna get something different like I'm gonna get something different than Henry or uh, Pastor Peak or Freddie or Bert or Kirk everybody's gonna have because everybody's at different stages of spiritual growth so you might be, God might be working on you with something else or giving you encouragement in an area you need encouragement or correction in another area or rebuke. We all are at different stages. So, um, but at the same, that's the beauty of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit working through all of us when we're in fellowship with him. So that's why it's very important now that uh, and never take it for granted because as I've told you, there's people who are taught just like you to rebound. First John 1, 9, don't do it anymore. And they were sitting in ministries for years that taught them this. So they, that means that they didn't really understand why they had to do that. They were just doing it mindlessly. We need to do it because God, first, his word says that, First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, he, God, the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, if you're perfect and you don't sin, you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> and so we're all sinners. We all make mistakes. We all sin in various ways. So... This is a time we can make, ensure the fact that we're in fellowship with God. So 1 John 1, 9 just restores us to fellowship. Now we got to stay in fellowship, and you do that by obeying what the Spirit teaches us in Scripture. Let me give you an illustration. If you're, up, uh, you're bitter toward your husband or your wife or, or, or your father and your mother, you're, ag you're aggravated when you're angry and you, and you burst out in anger at them, okay? Or you get a mental attitude saying, you know, I, wanna, I really want to crack my husband or my, I really want to crack my wife one, you know? Well, your mental attitude sins bitterness. Well, you're out of fellowship, confess the sin. You're back in fellowship. But now you got to stay in fellowship, so you can't go back to saying, I want to crack my husband or my wife or my father or my mother or my kids. Okay, no. you got to go and say, oh, the Spirit says, forgive one another. It's God and Christ has forgiven us. See, that's when you're staying in fellowship with God. So if there's anything off there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing or distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5, 7 says. Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. This is very important as well because one of the great tactics of the devil in his kingdom is to get you and I afraid afraid of everything. So one of the things that I've seen God do in my life is all the fears that you got when you came into your family and, and then you grew up and, and then before you had doctrine, you had all these fears that you had. And God is trying to weed you out, weed those out of your life because he doesn't want you to be afraid of anything. Only person we need to be concerned about and afraid of is the Lord because we have to give an account to him, okay? And so this is very important. So God doesn't want us to be anxious about anything. Give it up to him. Like a little kid, like when I was a, when I was a little boy, and I, I get frustrated, which was all the time, and I couldn't, I'm not a most mechanical person. I've gotten better over the years, you know, but you know, like all you engineers are probably laughing, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's all right. So I would get frustrated, couldn't fix something. I'd give it to my dad, say, can you fix it? And he said, Billy, will you calm down? And then he'd fix it and give it back to me. So in the same way, casting my toy in my father's lap and please fix it. Do that with a father. Just say, Father, I, I can't handle this. 
you're gonna have to handle it. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day that you've given to us, not only to experience creation, but to delve into your almighty word. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and we just thank you, Father, for his giving us illumination, insight into the revelation that you've given to us through the human authors of Scripture. We thank you for the Bible and the completed canon of Scripture and these great English translations that you've given to us and raising up the men and women who have provided us this great uh, scholarship in these translations. And just thank you, Father, for this building that we can meet in, and, and, and more importantly, the people that you've raised up here in Huntsville that are serious students of the Word of God, that care about your Word, want to put it into practice, they're good stewards with the time, talent, and treasure and truth that you've given to them. They want to learn how it is to become like your Son, Jesus Christ. They want to please you. And I thank you for each and every person here this morning, and also those who might be viewing, or excuse me, listening to a podcast or the websites. Uh, with regards to these lessons, Father. And I just pray today that uh, I know I'm totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit to uh, give every, uh, to be uh, used by me to give everybody an insight into the scriptures today in Obadiah verses 11 and 12. I pray that you would help me to bring forth your full counsel today to your people with accuracy and clarity, reverence and respect and power. I just pray the Spirit would use me powerfully as his instrument and I also as well, I pray this for the audience. Help your children to learn as well and understand by the Spirit, make application to concentrate and to enjoy. And I just, uh, this, uh, the messages today, I just pray, Father, that it would uh, cause all of us to stand in awe of who you are, what you are, and what you've done for us in the past through your Son and the Spirit, do for us now, and will do for us in the future. So, Father, we pray for this. And also, Father, we pray for our, our brother in Christ, uh, Ray. I just pray, Father, for him and uh, that you would uh, heal him and others in this ministry that are not fe uh, feeling well or dealing with different uh, uh, physical problems in their lives. So we thank you and praise you for being our great healer. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. You should get Obadiah verse 1. Obadiah verse 1, and uh, we'll read the whole, as we've been doing, because it's only one chapter long, uh, we'll read uh, the whole book. And then we'll look at verse 11 in our first session in great detail. Now, um, as we pointed out, this book was written by a, a prophet named Obadiah, obviously. And Obadiah, we don't know much about him. Nothing like, unlike a lot of the prophets like Jeremiah, there's not, not a lot of information on the guy. Uh, we don't even know who his father was or what the family he descended from. But we do know he had to be from the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. And we also know, based upon the contents of this book, that he was writing this after Nebuchadnezzar's final invasion of the kingdom of Judah in 586 B.C., which resulted in the destruction of Solomon's temple and the, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem uh, in fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, Daniel 9.26 and others, and the deportation of the Jewish people throughout the, uh, the Mesopotamian and Mediterranean regions of the world, in particular Babylon. And they remained there for 70 years according to Jeremiah's prophecy. So he's looking back retrospectively at what has happened and he's angry. And he's, you know, like a lot of the, king, the southern kingdom of Judah and the faithful remnant like Daniel, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they were all contemporaries of Obadiah. They were looking for justice too. You know, they, uh, we see that uh, those nations were evil. And as we pointed out, God uses one evil nation to destroy another evil nation. That's the way he governs the world. He, in fact, by doing that, it's obviously brilliant because he, he has evil defeating itself over and over and over again. So he's taking uh, the kingdom of Babylon, led by Nebuchadnezzar, and a coalition of nations that were along with him, and they destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, like the northern kingdom, they were disciplined for their apostasy. Now, there was a small remnant, as I said before, in Judah, like Daniel and Obadiah and Jeremiah, as I said before, Ezekiel, who had to suffer by association with their people who were in apostasy. And so he goes and uh, he writes, he gets this revelation from God, which is really, we know it was written after that final invasion because it's echoed by Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 7 through 23, as we've read. And so they sound almost identical. So they, and it's about Edom. So, they, so they're contemporary. So we know that Obadiah is writing after this destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah. And so uh, he's looking for retribution. He's looking for God, uh, some encouragement. And, you know, they have just gone through a devastating time. They've been, their nation has been, and just think of, put yourself in their position. What if you were, the United States had this happen to them, what uh, southern kingdom of Judah did in the 6th century BC? It would be devastating. Traumatic. The whole structure of your country is gone. The, 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 the political leadership is gone. I mean, just imagine if China or Russia uh, took us all, uh, took our leadership and, and, the, and the, 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 the intelligentsia of our nation took them captive into China or Russia or wherever we are. It'd be devastating. Okay? And, you're, and, you're, and, you're, and people and, you, and your family are killed right before your eyes. You know, we saw Zedekiah, his, he, before he got his eyes put out, he, uh, Nebuchadnezzar executed his sons right before his eyes. So the last thing he sees before his eyes are put out is the, is the execution of his sons. So this is a traumatic experience that's happened. So he is, like the rest of his contemporaries, de totally depressed about the situation and can't see how, what is God going to do about it now when you've just deported us? To, you know, is there a future for our nation? And of course there is a future for Israel uh, because of the promises God made to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who got his name changed to Israel by God, David, the new covenant with Jeremiah, guarantees that the nation of Israel will always exist. So those promises of God, they had to trust in and believe, and God would work it out. Though it looks like no way God's going to look at uh, pull this off. How is he going to do it? Well, with God, all things are possible, right? So you appropriate the omnipotence of God through your faith, and that's what these, these men did, and these women who were faithful remnant in Israel, and so they were waiting for a promise, they get some message from God, and he's going to deal with Edom. And this book, uh, Obadiah, contains a, a, a prophecy against the kingdom of Edom for their betrayal of their blood relatives. Edom, they were descendants of Esau. Esau and Jacob were brothers. Okay, so, the, so Jacob's descendants were the Israelites, southern kingdom of Judah, so their blood relatives. God was furious with Edom for betraying them. And they did something despicable. They let, they let Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, Babylonian army really just, just wipe the nation out, and then they, they just came in and cleaned up. They, they got some of them as slaves, sold them off as slaves, took property, uh, murdered people indiscriminately. It was, it was just a disaster. So God was furious because of that. So now he's going to give a prophecy. And so what's interesting, I brought this out in previous classes, the irony of the whole situation is that Jacob and Esau, okay, 
where Esau had a really bad attitude, wanted to kill his brother Jacob for basically betray, uh, you know, uh, betraying him and, and stealing his birthright and deceiving his, his blind father into thinking he, uh, he was him and, uh, and giving the blessing to, to Jacob rather than the oldest who was Esau. So there was that great animosity. But 20 years, about, about 20 years later, Jacob's been humbled. He had to go with Uncle Laban, who was just was worse than he was as a, a deceiver, and uh, but and and so uh, we see that Jacob was taught through divine discipline not to do that anymore to treat treat others like you'd want to be treated, and Esau was blessed by God. He had tremendous material prosperity, wives and children, and he was loaded. Okay, so Esau, when they finally hook up again, uh, and God sends Jacob back. Esau's not mad at uh, Jacob. He's like, he could kill us. I forgot, I forgot all about it. It was 20 years ago. I'm, God's blessed me, so I forget all about it, right? And so they patched it up, but their descendants didn't, which was in fulfillment of prophecy. They, throughout Old Testament Israel's history, there was a great animosity between the kingdom of Edom and the kingdom of Judah. It culminates in the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 B.C., which Edom played a part in. So that's what the context of this book is. So look at Obadiah verse 1. And by the way, not only, before we start reading it, and I brought this out, not only is this a prophecy of, against Edom, and that God's going to deal with them for what they did to the kingdom of Judah. The first 16 verses are pretty much like that, but verses 15 and 16 are actually pointing ahead to verses 17 through 21, which talks about uh, uh, God dealing with the nations in the future. In other words, this, you see this in Old Testament prophets a lot. The pat, the God's patent of dealing with the nations in the 6th century B.C. is the same patent he will use to deal with the nations in the future after the rapture of the church, the 70th week of Daniel. Because the context of verses 17 through 21 is talking about the millennial reign of Christ and how the nation of Israel will be restored to the land. They'll be united and they'll be in that land, not only regenerated, but they'll be restored to the land and have their millennial kingdom with their Messiah in Jerusalem leading the way and leading and being king of the earth at that time. So it says in Obadiah verse 1, the vision of Obadiah, this is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations. He was a fallen angel because Satan has authority over the, the uh, unregenerate nations of the earth. Rise, let us go up against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You'll be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? He's referring to their, their geographical location, as we pointed out in the past. There's a picture of the view of Petra in the southern region of Edom. This is what approaching armies would say. Uh, there's also some other pictures here I'll show you really quick. But here's the terrain they lived in. And so this is the, he's alluding to this particular rocky terrain there in verse uh, 3. Then it says in verse 4, Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I'll bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not, not uh, steal only as much as they wanted? If grape perkers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? Yes, harvesters would leave stuff behind, and thieves would too. They wouldn't take the whole house. So God's saying, however, in verse 6, but how Esau will be ransacked, I'll clean her out, he's what he's saying. His hidden treasures will be pillaged. Verse 7, all your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you, their friends being their allies. 
Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. Their intelligence, and they were wise men of the ancient world, Edom, because of their uh, being right there in the middle of the caravan routes in the, in, the, in the Negev. And so we see that they were very wise because of that information they received from other parts of the world through these caravans. And so they knew how to uh, take advantage of their geographical location, but they're not going to detect this, this one. God's going to see to it that they're not even aware of it. So in that day, as it says in verse 8, declares the Lord, Will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Rhetorical question, emphatic yes, is the answer. Your warriors, Teman, and Teman is a geographical location that is often used in the Old Testament, like along with Seir, to uh, represent the nation of Edom. So your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Then it says in verse 10, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, the, uh, the descendants of Jacob who were the southern kingdom of Judah, you'll be covered with shame. You'll be destroyed forever. On that day, you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over their, them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. The day of their disaster is the day of the Lord for them. Okay, The day of the Lord is throughout that particular prophecy, uh, day of the Lord prophecies are all over the Old Testament. Many have been fulfilled already. There's a, some that are not yet fulfilled. Day, we call it eschatological day of the Lord prophecies. For instance, the, the tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel, the second advent of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ, and the creation of new heavens of the earth. Day of the Lord is used in relation to all those dispensations. Okay? Then he says in verse 14, you shall not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. Verses 10 through 14 are the indictments that are given against the nation of Edom, and they serve as the basis for the, the prophecy in verses 2 through 9, uh, 2 through 9 which is, the, is prophecy of their destruction at the hands of God, at, by, by God through the Babylonian Empire. Not only does he tell them that he's going to destroy them, but I'm going to show you how I'm going to do it. And then he gives the basis for that in verses 10 through 14. So it's a very important. It's good. I used to do this. But if you're a parent, for instance, or you just a, uh, you're running a business or whatever you're doing, you notice how God does things. Before He punishes, He always gives the reasons. You know. So uh, that's pretty good. To, that's pretty good parenting. You know. <laughs> it's like so. He's basically saying, okay, you did this wrong, and this is now I'm going to do this, and here's why I'm going to do this. I want you to understand why I'm doing this, so you learn a lesson. Not to do it again, my father used to say. Now look at verse 15. The day of the Lord is near for all the nations. All the nations in the second and the sixth century BC, in context. But as I said before, it's also pointing as the path, what he, how he treated Babylon in the sixth century BC and, and Edom and Judah serves as the pattern as to how he's going to treat the nations subsequent to the rapture of the church, which is imminent. So the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What comes around goes around. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, drinking meaning the wrath of God, so all the nations will drink continually. And they will drink and drink and be as if they'd never been. Okay, the kingdom of Judah drank of the wrath of God for a brief period of time. He's saying these nations, they're going to drink of it continually. Meaning, I'm not going to allow them to become nations ever again. 
Verse 17, but on Mount Zion, now we get prophetic here, and he's pointing to the millennial reign of Christ, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble, uh, stubble, that's Edom, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau, the Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. And that's talking again about the millennial reign of Christ. Let me give you my translation of verse 11. Indeed, you were like one of them during that period of time when you stood aloof, Edom. During that period of time, strangers took his army captive, his being the, the citizens of uh, Judah. Consequently, foreigners penetrated his gates so that they cast lots for Jerusalem. So Obadiah verse 11 actually serves as a continuation of a section which uh, in this tiny book, which began in verse 10, and as I told you, ends in verse 14. This paragraph presents the God of Israel presenting the indictments against the nation of Edom. In other words, these verses present the reason why the God of Israel will judge this nation. In fact, verse 10, as I said last week, summarizes what verses 11 through 14 uh, detail in the same way verse 1 did in relation to verses 2 through 9. And furthermore, Obadiah 10 through 14 fills in some of the blanks of Jeremiah 52 and 2 Kings 25, which talks about the behavior of the kingdom of Judah during that final Babylonian invasion. In other words, they give us information, verses 10 through 14, regarding the fall of Jerusalem and 586 B.C., and it reveals the nation of Edom's role and the destruction at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Verse 10, we just read, contains two prophetic declarations that we saw last week, which revealed that God will destroy this nation because they sinfully committed violence against the descendants of uh, Jacob. Specifically, they committed violence against the southern kingdom of Judah during those Babylonian invasions of Judah in 586 B.C. So therefore, we see that the first prophetic de declaration in verse 10 asserts that the nation of Edom will be covered with shame because of the sinful violence they committed against their relative who were the descendants of Jacob. The second one, the second prophetic statement in verse 10 actually advances upon the, the prophetic declaration recorded in verse 9, which predicts that the Edomite people will be violently executed like criminals because of the slaughter as a result of their wise men being killed and their mighty warriors experiencing dismay because of this. So when God says that they'll be cut off, as we pointed out, he means that he's going to cut them off from the nations. Edom will not be a part of the community of nations anymore. But there is a caveat there. If you read Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 through the end of that chapter, just like Israel was not a, a nation for 2,000 years until 1948, so Edom will be resurrected so God can fulfill those prophecies that he has in Daniel about them. And remember, Edom, its geographical location sits on what we know today as the, southern, uh, as the kingdom of Jordan. That's where they are. That's where the, the, the lo their location was. So when God again says that they will be cut off, he means that he will cause them to be cut off from the nations of the earth. In other words, they'll no longer be a national entity with geographical boundaries because of God judging them for their sinful treatment of the southern kingdom of Judah in the 6th century B.C. So the violence 
that the Edomites committed against the people of Judah was during the last of the three Babylonian invasions, as I said, of, of uh, Judah in 586 BC. Now, during that time, they, we know this from Herodotus too, an, uh, an ancient historian, they raided villages in Judah, they sent prisoners to the Babylonians, and they also invaded Judah themselves, the southern, uh, southern portion of Judah. Now, so this is what they were doing. These people, what they did was a tremendous betrayal of their blood relatives, and God says this in the book of Judah, and he says this in Jeremiah 49, says this exact same thing as he's saying in Obadiah. Why is that important? It's for emphasis. God is, this tells you the wrath against this nation. That tells you how upset he is. And you, in fact, you see prophecies against Edom. God has the prophets give prophecies against Edom more than any other nation. Why? Because of their relatives, their blood relatives. It's absolutely tremendously immoral in the God's government for that to take place. So the implication is, that's why, you know, patricide, murdering your father or your mother or your children. There's this thing in Massachusetts that a woman murdered all of her children. And it's like people are stunned and there's all things connected to that too. But it's just like, it's, God doesn't, you know, God wants us to be, especially with blood relatives, to treat each other well and forgive one another and not harbor bitterness like the Hatfields and the McCoys or like Esau and Jacob did, Okay. So, we see that, that here in verse 11 now, Obadiah verse 11, the God of Israel, through the prophet Obadiah, emphatically presents two more indictments against the kingdom of Judah. The first, as we read, asserts that the Edomites were like one of those who attacked Judah. And the second, the second asserts that, the second is that during this period of time, they stood aloof, which brings out a principle here. They stood aloof while strangers, the Babylonians as we'll see, took Judah's army captive so that the foreigners penetrated the gates of Jerusalem and cast lots for her. So when it says during, or it says on that day, my translation says uh, in the, during this particular period of time, but if you look at your translation, at the very end of the, the beginning of the verse, it says on that day, it's talking not of a 24-hour period. The word is yom there in the Hebrew, and it can be referring to a 24-hour period. The context will indicate it if it is or it's not. Like in Genesis 1, the word's used. And it was the first day, and then the second day, the third day. Those are 24-hour periods. But here, and you see this in Daniel, when it's used in prophecy, it's a lot of times talking about a particular period of time. In this, in this context, the day of the Lord in relation to the kingdom of Ju uh, Judah and Edom. All right. So during that particular period of time, if you look at my slide on the board, or on that day in your Bibles, refers to the period of time in which the Babylonian armies attacked the southern kingdom of Judah in 605, 597, and 586 BC, and the strangers, thus the strangers, as they pointed out, and the foreigners in this verse were the Babylonians. Here's an interesting thing about Babylon. Remember um, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, King of Judah, right? Remember he, he died, or he was going to die, and he was, he, was, he was in the sick bed, and he cried to God, you know, hey, I don't want to die now, and, uh, you know, so God sends the prophet in, Okay, you're going to live another 15 years. Okay, so he lives, right? Then some people from Babylon show up. And he obviously was not thinking, so he, these people, these emissaries from Babylon, he accepts, he welcomes them, and then he shows them all his riches and all his stuff that he's, of his, his nation. So God sends a prophet in after they left. He says, who are those people? And he goes, oh, they're from Babylon. And they're from Babylon, he says, and what did you show him? I showed him everything. And I was like, he goes, 
not a good move because guess what? Your grandchildren are going to be slaves to that nation someday, and they're going to be they were Babylon. They were, with, with, he's talking about 605, 597, 586 BC. God was angry. Why did you Why did you tell him anything? So now you just gave him intelligence without even you know you gave him information, and now they know everything about you. So great, you just helped his army to attack you now. So eventually they did attack him. So, and it all started with Hezekiah making a bright move as the king and showing, you know, stuff that was, should be kept secret from the uh, intelligence-wise, and they didn't do it. Interesting little side there. So therefore, when it says on that day, uh, that particular, uh, that first, uh, we see that when it says during that particular period of time, that's the attack of Babylon, of the southern kingdom of Judah. So therefore, the first indictment in verse 11 is that they were like the Babylonians, the, the kingdom of Edom. And the, and the second is that they stood aloof while the Babylonians attacked the people of Judah. So when the Lord says, when he states that the Edomites stood aloof, he's speaking of the Edomites' inactivity while Judah was attacked in the sense that they refused to act in defense of their relatives. Keep that in mind. It's their relatives, their blood relatives. Why didn't you help them when you had need? It was totally immoral what they did. It was totally against... God's character and nature, it was totally against his holiness. It infuriated him. Treat others the way you want to be treated. And when you're blood relatives, why did you, you saw what was happening and you didn't even lend a hand to defend them? What is wrong with you people? I'll tell you what's wrong. They're wicked. That's what's wrong with them. So this implies that they were lacking in compassion for their blood relatives. So God, in a sense, is judging them because of their lack of compassion for their blood relatives. God's very concerned about compassion among us. Compassion, uh, God wants us to have a divine compassion. You know, think about how God treated the human race. Compassion is what? If you look at compassion, compassion is a heartfelt desire to help somebody who has a, a legitimate need. They have a need. What was our need in the human race? <laughs> the righteousness of God. We needed eternal life. We needed to get out from the wrath of God in which we were all guilty, both Jew and Gentile. So God had compassion, and he demonstrated it by sending his son into the world to live the life that we should have lived, a perfect obedience, and to suffer the, what we should have suffered, what was with the wrath of God. That's compassion. That's an expression of God's love. God wants us to have compassion for each other. John talks about it in 1 John. Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. If you see your brother of Christ in need, and you know, they're talking about the essentials of life, and you don't do anything about it, how can you say the love of God abides in you? No heart, no compassion. You've got to balance that too. You have to have discernment. Because some people, we know that some people, they're, 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 they're sleazy. They're trying to put, pull, uh, use the system, and they basically, they don't need anything. They're just trying to get, you know, they don't want to work. They just want to, they just want to live off other people, like a lot of people in this country. So we know that. So you have discernment about that. So we're not talking about those people who really, they should just get a job, you know, and they should just really stop, you know, mooching off people. But there are people like that. I had a person, a good friend of mine, he worked at the uh, Pine Street Inn in Boston. And he did it in his 20s. And, I, and he was, he's not, he's like, yeah, yeah, I played in a band with him many years. So he was telling me, he worked at the Pine Street Inn. And I, he said, you know, Billy? Now, he was like, back then, he was super left-wing, you know, illiberal in his politics. So he goes, he worked at Pine Street Inn. And he said, it was about five years after working. He said, you know, Billy, 
do you realize that most of those people, I would say 99.9% of the people there, they don't need to be there. So we talked about, he says, these people, some of these people I know are eccentric. <laughs> They're loaded. They just like to go and play off the system. They're messed up drugs. He says, they really don't need it. They have the money. They come from families that are very wealthy, and they tell me. And then they, they're sitting there, then why are they doing it? They're whacked. They just kind of drop out. You know, they can't deal with life. They can't deal with being wealthy, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. And so he said, these people, they, most of them are not even legitimately in need of the ser services that we provide there. Okay? In, in our country, I mean, you see this all the time. So, so he had to have, he learned discernment the hard way. You know, some people, they're just, they, they, they're not really in need. I, 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 have you ever seen somebody who's actually starved, starving? They're thin, right? They're not, they're not, they're not, you know, chunky like me, okay? They, they, my, well, my father, <laughs> he's not here. When you're hungry and starving, you're not going to be 500 pounds, or you're not even going to be 100, if you're my height, you're not even going to be 170. What I'm saying is that when people are hungry, you know it. You've seen a hungry person, and they're, they're, they're starving. You know when, when you've seen a hungry person, lobster, you know. In America, in Massachusetts, I never saw this in Massachusetts, but there was this place, and was, of course, a lot, of, a lot of money is in that area. And maybe they, they were on the streets, and they were just begging for money. And I looked down, and I was like, and they're like, they, they don't look like they're hungry to me. In fact, they look like they're doing better. In fact, I think they, what I heard, they're cleaning up left and right. They have a little racket that's going on, and the stupid people from Massachusetts are going, oh, here's, here's some more money. Because <laughs> it assuages them of their guilt that they have money. So they have to give it away. So even though you're giving it to somebody who doesn't really need it, and they're just actually exploiting the compassion without discernment, Americans. <laughs> and so these people, and I won't say, but they're from other parts of the world. They do this all the time. I know this. So discernment. We have to have, love must have discernment. When we talk about compassion, you know, we want to help the people. Obviously, I don't know a Christian that doesn't want to help somebody who's in need. I don't know a Christian, really. Even the worst Christian I've ever met. They, they all want to help somebody in need. But you've got to have discernment. Okay? You've got to have discernment. You don't, you don't want to dishonor the Lord by having discernment. Like giving, you know, $50 to a guy who's an alcoholic or a drug addict, and he's just going to take the money and go get, and get time went on again. You know, you've got to have discernment. It's not love to give him that money when he's going to go and, and, and kill himself with drinking or alcohol or, 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 or drugs. What you really should do is, hey, I'll get you, I'll buy, you have to do this, get him, you know, I'll buy you some, a, a, a dinner here. Let's go here. We'll get you dinner, okay? Or you know, it's like, hey, you can come to Bible class. Come to church tomorrow. You know, you know, a lot of people from overseas they hit me on uh, through the internet. It's like, you know, I think they think I'm a big seminary. That's what I heard because of our the website. And I was like, no, we're just a small little church. And he's like, I said, I, I don't have, you know, we're not our coffers are not loaded. I'm talking about once the Bible studies. I said, we, can, you know, I can't help you. I said, I can give you the word of God. And it's like anybody who comes, I, I can give you the, we can give you the word of God here. You know, that's more important than silver and gold, isn't it? Yes. So compassion with discernment, love must have discernment. And so Edom lacked compassion for their brothers, their blood relatives. And God was going to do something about it. So they stood aloof, as the passage says. They stood aloof while the Babylonians took the army of Judah captive and penetrated the gates of Jerusalem. Their inaction... 
made them complicit in the war crimes committed against the people of Judah by the Babylonians. Uh, B.K. Smith, a great scholar, he says the following, I'm quoting, the siege of Jerusalem lasted about 18 months, and he references 2 Kings 25, 1 through 8. Then he says, when the city fell, Nebuchadnezzar's forces moved in with a vengeance to destroy, kill, and pillage. Destroy, kill, and pillage. Now let me tell you, back it up here. When they laid siege to a city, oh, the, one of the worst ones of all time documented by Josephus, is the Romans attacking Jerusalem in 70 AD, 66 to 70 AD. What they would do laying siege to a nation, uh, a city, is they would starve it out. And that's what they were doing to Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. That's why Zedekiah tried to make a break for it, it's, as we read a, a couple of weeks ago. And they got him. Okay? So they were already weak as it is physically from the, from the lack of food, de food deprivation, and sleep probably, deprivation too, and probably water. So it was either start, you know, cannibalism, or we try to make a break for it. So again, as uh, B.K. Smith says, the siege of Jerusalem lasted for siege of Jerusalem lasted about 18 months when the city fell, Nebuchadnezzar's forces moved in with a vengeance to destroy, kill, and pillage. And I'm missing, I'm missing, I'll read the rest of it. I didn't have the slide there for you, sorry. Then it says, when they finished, Judah's kinsmen moved in to loot, to capture fugitives, to sell his slaves, and to kill those who fled from the destruction. What a terrible, they would just sit there, clean, mop up. Babylon goes, beats the living daylights out of him, and then uh, Edom just came in and cleaned up the mess, cleaned up the rest, and, and, and actually exploited, uh, you know, killed people who were trying to run away from the, from the uh, refugees. All that stuff was going on. And so God was decided he was going to do something about it. So Obadiah 11 is describing Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian armies, armies attacking the southern kingdom of Judah in 586, 586 B.C. And the principle that we see here is that the Holy Spirit's trying to tell us is that here in Judah, Obadiah verse 11, that this verse is speaking of one nation's indifference to another, Judah. Indifference. You know, there's, in, in John, I told you that first John passage. One of the worst things, you know, when you, you, you it's, you're either loving your neighbor, loving your brother in Christ, or your neighbor yourself, or you're not, okay? When you look the other way, and you could do something, that indifference is a lack of love. Edom had an indifference to people in need. Their brothers, their, their blood relatives, okay? So they were lacking in compassion. So as nations, what God's telling us, you know, the implication for us, or the application for us, or the, the implications of 74, is that Edom's indifference to Judah and their plight, and actually being aggressively against them after Nebuchadnezzar cleaned them up, it shows a lack of compassion. It applies to individuals, not just nations. You know, like for instance, you know, we see, you look at, you know, when, uh, in, in nations, like in World War II, you know, you know when Hitler's Nazi, Nazi Germany goes in, there, Japan, Empire of Japan, and they're, you know, they're, they're cleaning out these nations, uh, these, uh, these nations out, like the Philippines and Taiwan and World War II, and then you get World War II, you have in Europe, Hitler's going into Poland, and you have all that. These nations couldn't stand a chance. They just were run over by these guys, Japan and Germany. The nations who, who have the ability to stand up to those nations, like the United States and Britain, they had an obligation to go and fight that war. See, that was a just and righteous war. 
we needed to do something about that. Okay, that was so. So they were clean. They were, and then Hitler's going out and wiping off, uh, wiping uh, the Jews off the face of the earth. We had a moral obligation to fight that war. Okay, Edom had a moral obligation as a nation to help, at least help the refugees fleeing for the Babylonian armies and give them some cover. Your blood relatives, but they didn't do it. And this brings out a principle, and we'll close here the first session. James 4, 7 says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Actually, look at, uh, you don't have to hold your place. Go to James real quickly and we'll close. Look at James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 1. Now James has a James has a lot of problems, a lot of critics, because a lot of people can't understand James with Romans, particularly, particularly the first five chapters of Romans, because justification and faith, James uses it a different way than Paul does in the first five chapters, justification and faith. You know, Paul's talking about in the context in the first five chapters of Romans, how, Romans, how does it, a, non, a non-Christian, a non-believer, get right with God through faith in Jesus and the Father declares you justified? James is talking to people who are already justified by faith. They're already believers. So when you use justification and faith in that chapter, in that book, it's a different context, different thing altogether. So James is dealing with a Jewish Christian community, and they had a lot of problems. <laughs> like a lot of churches, these people were quarreling and fighting. They were legalistic. You know, they thought some, many of them believed what Jesus said were not under the law. They didn't have to follow dietary regulations, and a lot of Jews even Peter was one of them, that we have to obey those dietary regulations. We can't have anything to do with the Gentiles. We can't go to Gentiles' home. You know, we have to live by the law of the spiritual life. In Acts 15, they're told, no, don't, the Gentiles don't have to be under the law. You couldn't even keep the law. So the spiritual life, we had to live the spiritual life, both Jew and Gentile Christians, through the gospel, sound doctrine, the apostles' teaching, mystery doctrine of the church age, you want to call it. So James 4.1 says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you, the sinful desires of the sin nature? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. He's talking to believers here. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. You're spiritually adulterers. He's saying to the, he's talking, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, Jesus, like Jude, right? Look what he says to his congregation. This is tough stuff. You adulterous people, you spiritual adulterers, he's saying. Don't you know that friendship with the world, the cosmic system of Satan, which manifests itself in your poor treatment of your brother or sister in Christ, means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You know, don't do what I did when I, was, when I first got a Christian. And uh, Satan, get away! I don't know, I'll bind you. I didn't say bind you. I don't know, I forget what I said. Get, get, get the devil out of here. You know, like, he's like, the devil's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, the devil wouldn't spend time with me. One of his, his privates, his buck privates, was messing with me. I was like, he goes, no. You resist the devil. You submit to God. That means submit to what his word says, and he'll flee from you. 
Now listen to me. Didn't Jesus model that for us when he went to face the devil after his baptism? The devil was trying to tempt him and he responded with the word of God. So that's what we need to do. We can't fight the devil. We don't know God's word. And in fact, it's the spirit through your application of the word that's going to cause him to flee till he has a more convenient time. And he will come back. When I say the devil, the people who are under him, because the devil's not going to spend personal time with any of us. At least that I don't think so. But uh, so it says, submit yourselves to, then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then he says, come near to God, have fellowship with him and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, rebound, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Uh, ch change your laughter uh, to mourning, he says, and your joy to gloom. But if you notice back here, I'll keep going here. It's a, okay, it's verse 9, it says, Grieve, mourn, and wail. Ch change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, he says, before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against the brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. And there is only one law uh, giver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are, who are you to judge your neighbor? And I'm looking here for the thing I wanted. Okay, keep going. Verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why then do you not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it, if it is the Lord's will, you, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Okay? Now, here's another passage real quick. 1 John chapter 3. Look at verse 15. 1 John 3, 15. First John 3.15, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. Imagine that. If you hate your brother in Christ, you're a murderer. In God's eyes. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. When he's talking about you're not experiencing eternal life when you do that. When you're out of fellowship with God because of bitterness or hatred toward your brother or sister in Christ, you're out of fellowship. You're not experiencing eternal life is what he's saying. He's writing to believers here. You can't lose your salvation. Verse 16, this is how we know that what, that what love is, God's love. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, an act of compassion. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. We need to do the exercise the same divine compassion. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? It's not. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and and truth. And this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So as we close this first session, the, the, the kingdom of Edom, who are the, descent, uh, the blood relatives of the kingdom of Judah, exercised absolutely no compassion toward their blood relatives as they were getting wiped out by the Babylonian Empire. The implication for us, we must be compassionate to our neighbor whoever he is, black, white, Jew, Gentile, slave or free. And again, exercise compassion. Uh, I, I can't exercise compassion, but also discernment. I'll give you a funny story. 
Somebody came to, to, to the church yesterday while we were moving everything in, and they drive up in a car, and they get out, and they don't look like they're emaciated and, and starving, and they were hitting up one of the guys for, 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 for money. So I, I saw, I got caught a glimpse of the car and the person. So I'm driving out of the church after we finish, and I go, huh, they live right over here. They live in a half-decent house, and you know, they, they, so they got, and probably own it, I rent mine, and then they're sitting over there, and then they come over here, and they're looking for a handout. Hello, be discerning. These people are playing somebody, they're not starving, not, they're not neat. You know, you get a car, why don't you drive down to McDonald's or Star Market and get a job there? I'm serious, like, it's crazy with these, some of these things that are going on in our country. And that's, you have to have discernment. So our deacons have discernment. Thank, praise God. You know, I remember one time uh, somebody came in to our church at Prairie View, and I was in the prep school, and he said, I was doing something. Some guy came in off the street, and he had the weirdest looking skin I'd never seen. He was like, he had no hair on his arm, and he had a great tan. I was like, hmm. But he looked, you know, he was asking for, I, Asking for something, I, I gave him 20 bucks. Bob goes over and he says, you just give that guy 20 bucks. I said, Bill, he's going down to the down the street to the package store. He's going to get a six-pack now. He's an alcoholic. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> he teaches me, have a little discernment, okay? So we need to have discernment when we exercise compassion with people. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray this lesson would be great and a uh, blessing to us and instruct us in living the spiritual life and, and practicing the righteousness of God in our lives, contrary to what the, uh, the Edomites did to their blood relatives, the kingdom of Judah. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.